Hey, Crime Town listeners. Zach here. Hope you're enjoying season two. Thanks for sticking with us. Mark and I are going to have some exciting news coming soon, so look out for that. But in the meantime, we wanted to introduce you to a new true crime podcast called Man in the Window. In this brand new podcast from the LA Times and Wondery, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Paige St. John takes you deep into the untold story of the origins of the Golden State Killer. And she explores why he was never stopped. It was the 1970s and 80s in California. A serial attacker was carefully planning and executing brutal home invasions. This man would become known over the years by several different nicknames. The Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the original Night Stalker. But to many, he was just the man in the window, a faceless figure on the other side of the glass. For the first time, you'll hear directly from victims and trace the path of devastation through their recollections. You're about to hear a preview of Man in the Window, in which you'll meet the first person to recognize the evil inside Joseph James D'Angelo, his young girlfriend who turned down his marriage proposal. And while you're listening, go subscribe to Man in the Window on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. There's also a link in the episode notes that'll take you there. The full series is available to binge right now. All right, here's that preview. Man in the Window contains depictions of sexual violence and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. It's a sweltering California day, and Bonnie Caldwell is climbing the steep hill of the old family farm. This little piece right here was pastured. At the very, very top is a tall farmhouse, Bonnie's old home. It was right here, 48 years ago, that Bonnie told her fiancé that their engagement was over. He, he wasn't very happy about that. He was um, not, not calm about it. She was still a teenager, barely out of high school. And he was an older Vietnam vet named Joe. It had been exciting at first, but now she was ending things between them. It was just, you know, I want to marry you. You know, we are perfect together and I don't want you to do this. I think he kind of felt like the door was closing and there was no bargaining to get it open again. I just said, I I just I don't want to marry you anymore. She gave him back her diamond engagement ring. He took it, then stepped off her porch and seemed to throw it. And that's where we thought he threw it. Her family and friends spent days looking for that ring. Finally, they realized it was all a fake. He hadn't thrown the ring at all. Still, Bonnie figured, that was the end of it. But she was wrong. Around the side of the house, there's a line of windows at eye level. So this is my parents' bedroom. This is another bedroom in between. And this was my bedroom. A few weeks after the breakup, Bonnie was asleep in bed. And something startled her awake. And what woke you? Tap on the window. And I, I just pulled it, just a 
thin cotton curtain on the window, and I pulled it back, and he was pointing a gun at my face. She buried the memory of that night for 49 years, until the day she got a call. Her ex-fiancé, the man at her window that night, had just been accused of being one of the worst serial killers in California history, the Golden State Killer. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Paige St. John, and this is Man in the Window. This is episode one, Phantom in the Fog. Between 1973 and 1986, a phantom roamed California. He burglarized hundreds of homes, sexually assaulted 50 women and children, and murdered 13 people. At first, he went unnoticed, and then he became unstoppable. He was known by many names, the Vesalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, the Creek Killer, the original Night Stalker, and finally, the Golden State Killer. In 2018, police for the first time connected those names and horrific crimes to one man. As an investigative reporter, I wanted to know how someone could rape and kill so freely, and then go for decades without being caught. The search for answers took me to a small town, Rancho Cordova. In the early 70s, it's a tangle of looping roads and cul-de-sacs clustered around an Air Force base. Residents here are largely transitory, young military families on the move. And their tract homes are cheap, nearly identical, with sliding patio doors in the back and in front, large windows that face the street. At night, the illuminated windows present a display of the private lives within. At first glance, it seems like a middle-class suburb, but there are no streetlights, and the homes are a little too close together. It has the appearance of being middle-class, but without the security. Sergeant Richard Shelby is the sheriff's night watch commander for Sacramento County. American River, we call the dividing line. Everything south of the American River is his. And south is from Rancho Cordova, anything below that. Right. He's a tall, lanky man, missing a finger from a partner's gun that once misfired. And he's known for his stubborn independence, a prickliness that makes him a thorn in the seat of his superiors. There's a spate of break-ins in his patrol area. What did you make of the, the burglaries? I don't remember anything about it. Yeah. I would have seen it and just thought just another burglary and just wrote it off. Only later, in retrospect, will the theft strike Shelby as unusual. This burglar doesn't touch expensive items like televisions or stereo systems. He took uh, silver coins, he took cash, he took jewelry. Sometimes he'd take one set, one piece from a set. Single earrings, coins, class rings, fraternal tokens, trophies from the lives of his victims. Sometimes, weeks later, residents will realize he's taken a picture from the photo album. And in every case, the photo he removes is of a woman or a girl. 
there are other unusual features, like the long periods of time he spends in the home, or the fact that he leaves behind burnt matches and half-eaten food, moves women's underwear around and stacks it on the beds. He's unusually careful about the way he operates, too. He goes to great lengths to make escape from the targeted house easy at a moment's notice and to prevent himself from being surprised. He would block the front entry, any entryway into the house in the front, he'd block it. He opened multi-escape routes out back. He turned off anything that would make noise. And he's prolific. We're talking like, oh, bird, I don't know, burgers every day almost for a couple of months. At first, he strikes only when people are away. But in 1973, that changes. He begins creeping into homes while the residents sleep. It's what cops call a hot prowl. And he's now a full-fledged cat burglar, a fairly rare and dangerous sort of thief. Cat burglars are not so interested in what they steal as the risk they take. They're drawn by the sexual thrill, the danger of being caught. He started out prowling, probably exposing himself in the burglaries, his textbook. The sexual motive of these crimes becomes more obvious as the break-ins go on. One woman opens her eyes and sees him standing at her dresser. Another woman wakes up when she feels him touching her breast. And lots of women report hearing a rap at the window, looking out, and seeing a man naked from the waist down. They say his face has an empty expression, but sometimes he's smirking. There are enough of these crimes that cops give him a nickname, the Cordova Cat Burglar. But he's also something else, something that's all too common in the 1970s, a peeping Tom. And your odds of catching a peeping Tom? Oh, they're uh, slim. You'd be surprised how many are out there. There are a lot of peeping Toms. In the 1970s, this kind of crime isn't exactly a police priority. There's two nuisance-type calls, peeping toms and weenie wavers, the indecent exposure. But soon, peering in windows or hovering over women while they sleep isn't enough. It's September 1973. A 28-year-old woman is home alone with her toddler when she hears a knock at the door. She ignores it, figuring it's some salesman or other. And then she hears a noise at the back of the house. She sees a man at the window. He's already removed the screen to pry the window open, but he takes off around the house when he realizes he's been seen. She hurries to get her gun and frantically locks the doors and windows and puts the chain on the kitchen door. Next thing she knows, he's on the other side of that door, trying to break the chain. She's a few feet away, her gun raised. She shouts, if you come any further, I'm gonna shoot you. He backs off, and she calls police. She thinks the worst is over. But that's when he makes a second push, breaking through the kitchen door. He rushes her, closing the distance so fast she can't move, and he grabs her hands, taking control of the gun. When police arrive, they find her on the floor. The gun fired high, and the bullet missed her. She's alive, but passed out. And the prowler is gone. By the summer of 1974, Richard Shelby is back to spending much of his time sitting in a car. 
he's been promoted to supervising the night patrol. One night, the police radio crackles to life. The dispatcher reports a call in Rancho Cordova. Someone's seen a prowler. Normally, Shelby would let his deputies handle this kind of small-time stuff. When he gets to the house, he joins the other officers who responded to the call. They walk the grounds, check the doors. There are no signs of a prowler, so the police leave. Shelby is barely gone a block when the dispatcher reports neighbors have seen the man again. Shelby is the first back on the scene. The neighbors tell him the man must have been in hiding. They tell him... He jumped off the roof of the house, hit the ground running, went back over the fence into a ditch. Oh, this is not that shallow over there. Shelby stands at the edge of the concrete irrigation canal. It runs for miles in either direction. Behind him is the dark and silent house. When they last left, everything was locked tight. But now... And the garage doors rolled up and this big stick. There's a bloody log on the ground. He's fired with probably a foot and a half long, maybe that, but maybe smaller. I mean, it was. I remember it was soaked in blood and, and flesh stuck all over it. Blood and guts all over the thing. He thinks to himself, Oh shit, here we go. And uh, I should have called backup, but didn't. I've been told the guy was gone. Thinking back, he probably wasn't. He's probably sitting there in the bushes or on the roof watching. But I had my gun out, of course. Shelby steps into the house. He can see well enough without using his flashlight. He doesn't want to be an easy target as he moves from room to room. It was a, a heavy atmosphere, I remember that. Where there's a death, you'll always know it. And they got the master bedroom and there was the dog. It's the family pet, a small poodle. Under their bed. They'd been beaten to death. Not just beaten, but disemboweled. That dog, half crawled beneath the bed as if seeking escape, will haunt Shelby into the next century. Shelby doesn't know it, but it's a sign of what's to come. That was a preview of Man in the Window. To listen to the rest, subscribe to Man in the Window on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.